You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hi, I'm Brett Arsenault, Chief Information Security Officer at a little company called Microsoft. Recently, I was approached by some customers who are really struggling with the complexities of the security threat landscape. In particular, just looking for practical advice. With the increase in threats, with the changing landscape and digital transformation that's going on, people were really trying to understand from experts, what could they do practically that would actually help them in this new threat landscape we're living in today? And I realized how fortunate I am to have met with some of the sharpest minds on this topic, whether it's competitors, vendors, internal Microsoft people, government people, who all share a vision for a mission on how to better protect ourselves. This created an opportunity to take some of those learnings and share them in this podcast series. Hopefully you'll find this interesting. I know I'll learn a lot from it. Today I'm joined by my fellow colleague, Jeff Belknap, the Chief Information Security Officer at LinkedIn. Jeff joined LinkedIn a little over two years ago, where he leads the organization's internal security teams in building a safe, trusted, and professional platform. Jeff is dedicated to ensuring millions of LinkedIn members around the world have access to economic opportunity in a safe, private, and secure way. Jeff has more than 22 years of experience in network architecture and security leadership. Prior to his role at LinkedIn, he was the Chief Information Security Officer at Slack, where he built the security organization from the ground up, including laying the groundwork for Slack's production incident management process. Today, Jeff and I are gonna talk about a big challenge every industry faces, recruiting cybersecurity talent and how we can solve for skills gaps in the cybersecurity industry. Welcome to Security Unlocked, Jeff. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's, uh, it's an amazing background you bring into this, and I think uh, as a luminary in the space, I'm you know, privileged and honored to have you on the call, so I look forward to the conversation. Hey, I know, you know, we're heavily recruiting on cyber talent and always looking for more talent. I know you are at LinkedIn and we're sort of all fishing from the same pool, if you will. Currently, there's a shortage of supply and only an increasing demand as risks grow around us. Really looking forward to having that conversation with you on the talk today. Mm-hmm. Should be good. Before we get started, maybe you could give a little bit about your path industry. I think you have a pretty interesting path to how you get into the security industry, and you've been doing it for a long time. But uh, let's hear what your what your path got you here. It's great, and I'm glad we talk about this because I think one of the the things that's really important, especially now as as information security or cybersecurity grows as a career path that you can aspire to, it's really important to realize that most of us, and especially me landed here in this job in the most untraditional path possible. I had a good network engineering, telecommunications, architecture career, but I was a kid who, growing up, always wanted to be a cop or a fireman or something like that, have you know some connection to, to justice. And I got connected with a startup and moved to California, and they said it was about two months into the job, two months into the job, and they said, hey, you're an adult who makes good decisions. And then we paused for laughter and, and they, they didn't laugh. And <laughs> I'm I said, glad I get to laugh. Yeah, I said, okay, I agree that I'm an adult. They said, hey, we're going to build a security team. Do you want to run the security team? And I was like, yeah, that, that sounds really cool. I, I think I'd really enjoy that. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. I, I started at Palantir. We built the, the security team there. I later moved on to Slack and sort of started again, started from scratch and, and built the security team up. 
and have since moved on to LinkedIn. And, it, and it's really been a fantastic journey of, uh, of taking the things that you're passionate about and combining them with the things that you are somewhat good at, debatably, uh, on a day-to-day basis, and bringing them to the you know, executive leadership function and really helping and enabling a team to move forward and be successful at the practice of security. And just in regard to that question, though, when they said that, you know, you're an adult and you make smart decisions and you said, I am an adult, does they that mean you don't decisions. make smart decisions? I don't know about smart oh. decisions. That The jury, jury's still out on that. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. But it is an interesting path, you know, when you think about in this space, you're in a security company like Palantir, then you go into a collaboration company where security is the adjective, and then you, you know, you go to LinkedIn and, again, big collaboration, big social perspective, but how do you make security work in an environment where you're trying to be both productive and secure? I think that's a that's a great path, and I think it's important for people to take that into consideration. It's also interesting how many people started with a desire to be in law enforcement who are in this space. It's about 50-50 on some of the folks we've talked to, so uh, I spent most of my time running from it, so that's a little bit different, but I guess I had my own views on that. I think we all started I, I, with a misspent youth. <laughs> exactly. That's the common exactly. thread. Let's jump in on this. I was reading the other day on CNN uh, a quick article that talked about the U.S. Bureau pointing out that information security analysts will be the 10th fastest growing occupation over the next decade. That today, the cybersecurity professionals are still only 25% women, so we have work to do there. And so this gap just continues to grow on, on experience and talent and roles that need to be filled in this space. What's your initial reaction to that? Oh, I think I think that third bullet point is is really important, right? That we need to invest more in growing cybersecurity talent, right? I think information security or cybersecurity, whichever word works for you, is in the relativistic sense new, right? This is a new space. It wasn't certainly when I went to school was not was not an option. Network engineering and telecommunications wasn't either, and certainly cybersecurity wasn't. So as you sort of develop this new space, as happens traditionally in tech. I, you know, it, it is not a diverse workforce. And one of the things we really have to focus on is building that workforce, right? Starting with people who have a passion for this problem set that is really hard, that is really important for your organization to solve, and invest in those people, build them up. Like, you know, take the people that have the raw skills that are going to help them be successful in just about any tech job and give them what they need to build themselves up to be a fully performant security engineer and in whatever discipline that might be. And I think the more we invest in people and the more we invest in developing those people, the more we're going to stop talking about this sort of fallacious idea that you know, there's a gap, that there's a skills gap. There's a skills gap because nobody knows how to do this work. And there's no, you know, there's no trade school you go to to like learn this. So we have to fill that gap in with with teaching people how companies like ours do this work. So I think it's really interesting when we think about it, like there's recruiting, there's developing, there's retaining talent. And obviously LinkedIn is kind of interesting. One, you're trying to recruit talent, but your platform also helps recruit talent as well. I know we use it all the time. So what do you think about from a perspective on uniquely recruiting talent, given the environment or the competitive environment that we're in and in some of the skill sets we just talked around or some of the people we're trying to get into the space? I think one of the most important things is to is if you're recruiting is to make sure that you're recruiting for the the right level of skill and to understand that people just don't have a lot of these skills yet right you cannot find a cloud security engineer that has 20 years of experience not really and you're definitely not right. going to find 10 of them and you're not going to find a diverse grouping of people that have the skill set when you think about the things that make 
security really good at your organizations, you think about, I want a diverse set of people with a diverse set of perspectives from diverse backgrounds. I want people that have, you know, come at it from, you know, maybe they came from networking like I did, or maybe they came from security, or maybe they came from the military, or maybe they came from academia. So you want this diversity of perspective. And to get that, you have to stop thinking that what you really want is the person who's a principal level, you know, network security cloud architect that knows all three cloud platforms that are majors in the industry. And instead, you have to think about who are the kind of people that can process and analyze all the information and understand the technology and that can build that understanding of what the organization is trying to accomplish and the tools that are available to them to accomplish those objectives and can build themselves into that engineer. I mean, of course, we all need a senior person or two that can help, you know, sort of guide them and mentor them. But I encourage people to really think about how to look for those people that are about to become the the absolute best version of what they need and think like one step earlier in the career path as they're trying to hire these folks. Because those folks are going to be excited and energized and responsive, and they're going to throw themselves into that work, and they're going to learn how to do that, uh, and they're going to develop themselves into the best version of the engineer you could possibly want. And that is really what you want. You want those people. You don't want people that are sort of bored or just interested in money or maybe not completely interested in the mission of your organization. So I think a lot of that just comes down to thinking about how you should be really recruiting for those roles. No, that's a great perspective too, on, to your point when you were talking about the mission, right? I think people, you are one, I think I'm fortunate to us, is when your vocation meets your advocation, that's kind of a cool point in life if you can be in that space. Since I know you are a lifelong learner, what are the lessons you learned in the last year? One, lesson you learned that's new and you want to keep doing, and lesson you learned that maybe isn't your strength and you don't want to do. Oh, man, that's a good question. That's the beautiful thing about being podcasters. I get to ask really good questions. <laughs> Great, and then we can just, we can just uh, cut out the part where I'm silent for three minutes and, and stunned while <laughs> totally. I think about that. I think, well, I can, I can start with the second part first uh, and, and tell you the thing I have learned that's been amazing is that seven-year-olds can operate video conferencing software far exceeding the capacity of many adults that I work with. Yep. And I would really like to never do that again, to never have uh, my children operating video conferencing technology day in and day out and be the home IT sport. I think the the thing I've learned about myself as a leader is if you hire the right people, and I think looking at this through the lens of you know the last year that, that we've been operating in where we've been learning all kinds of new leadership lessons, if you hire the right people and they're committed to the mission, there is no obstacle you can throw in front of them where they will not figure out a way to adapt and overcome to that obstacle. And I think when we all started working remotely, we all wondered, like, how are we going to do this job? This is going to be very, very challenging. And what we learned is people find a way. And certainly it was very hard for people when you you adapt. But I think one of the things that was really interesting is we we learned that using these tools that we had available to us, whether they be video conferencing or chat or email, when we were all working remotely, we adapted in a way that brought a lot of equity to the way that we worked, right? We were suddenly all in an equal playing field. And we sort of inevitably made time for our our colleagues to do their share ideas or to to be innovative or whatever it is. But suddenly we're on the same, uh, we're on the same playing field. Everyone's contributing. And I think while productivity has never been higher, we we learned that you know innovation can really happen in a lot of different ways. So 
I learned that I didn't have to necessarily be in an office five days a week to innovate and work with great people. I don't know that I want to do that again, uh, and I definitely don't want to learn any lessons the way that we learned that again, but I'm always really impressed by the caliber of people I get to work with. I think your point, though, about you know the adversity and, and how people, this equanimity of people all working remotely, it's interesting, right? When you know, you, you've been part of these leadership meetings and other things, and everyone's on equal footing, which is really cool. And how can you keep that when you put people that, you know, in the areas that they'll be returning to workplace? You know, how do you keep that, that equivalency there is going to be, I think, important because it's one of the most, I think, impactful parts of, of, you know, inclusion is that everyone has an equal voice. And so that was one of the things that was pretty cool. Well, I think the, the most important thing that I keep in mind is the thing that attracts people to an organization and the thing that retains people in an organization is always culture. It's always going to be, what's it like working there? And so what I've learned is, you know, compassion and empathy really are not just good things. They're not just optional things to have. But if you really want to have a great culture, if you want to have that organization that's going to attract and retain the best talent, you have to authentically have an organization that cares for the people that work there, that that understands people can't do the best work of their life if their life is a mess. And, and I think what we all learned is, you know, this last year, certainly there was a lot of overlap between life and work, and there was sort of a joke to think about separating those things. But we also learned how to be compassionate, you know, caring, thinking leaders. And I think a lot of, a lot of that really doubled down on the kind of culture that I want to work in and that I want to help build. So I'm going to switch gears because I like the way you're thinking about it. And this is both on recruit and retain. But when you have people there, to your point, there's not enough skills. You obviously have a unique position in the fact that, you know, we have uh, the what used to be Linda, now LinkedIn Learning, which is an amazing tool to learn anything about everything. It's kind of an amazing platform. How do you think about that in terms of really encouraging people, like you said, that don't have skill sets, but to come in? I mean, in some ways, there's too much learning. So how do you like hone that down within LinkedIn to say, here's a set of things that'll really help you go build skills in communications or skilled in cloud or skills in, let's take encryption. I think there's, uh, I'd love to hear practically how you're using the, your own platform to help with your people. Well, I know the first thing I went on there and learned was how to light a video call so that you don't look uh, like the Grim Reaper on every video call. That was important mm-hmm. for me. And I think because I'm relatively new to LinkedIn, that was a that was uh, a fantastic way to learn firsthand that there really is learning for everything there on LinkedIn for lots of people. I think one of the things that we are experimenting with this this coming fiscal year is we're trying to we have a a, a ton of open roles. By the way, come to LinkedIn.com, look for a job for security at LinkedIn. We have lots of them. We would love to have you. If we can take people that are in career transition or are early career folks, like they're just coming out of college or just transitioning out of the military, or you know maybe they were a mechanic uh, and now they want to you know break into tech, whatever your path that brought you to the, the precipice of thinking of taking on a, a path of learning to, to be an engineer in security space or an analyst in risk or, or a program manager or whatever the path might be, there is a learning path on LinkedIn. And we're looking at like, how do we apply the knowledge that LinkedIn already has as learning paths 
to engineers that are new or folks that are new to security and use that as part of a comprehensive package to build them up to be high-performing security employees at LinkedIn or, or anywhere else for that matter. And I think there's, there's a lot of potential there for us to take people that have the, I'll say, minimally competent set of skills that they need to know how to be a technical employee at an organization like LinkedIn, and then bring them the knowledge of both how LinkedIn does it and how our unique environment at, at the scale that we're at does it, but also all the learning that's available to you at LinkedIn to, to build yourself into that minimally competent engineer and then grow from there into somebody that's an expert, somebody that can then be a mentor to other people and bring them along a path that was similar to theirs into security and then hopefully into security at LinkedIn. No, and that would be awesome. Like we all benefit from that. I think one of the things that's super important, though, as we talk about developing talent, you know, like here we have meeting free Friday mornings every Friday and every other Friday a full Friday, which is really designed to let people catch up, spend time, spend time in learning and doing those kinds of things, like on on LinkedIn Learning. What are you doing around that space, and what do you suggest or recommend for other uh, CISOs or professionals in the field to do? Yeah, we do something pretty similar. We have regular monthly no-meeting days where people are encouraged to, to learn and expand their skills or focus on things that are just focused work without meetings. And then we also have something unique at LinkedIn called in-days. And these are days once a month where you can focus on yourself, developing yourself. There's also an opportunity to focus on community development and investing in your environment or your family. There's always a theme that goes with these. But the underlying idea is take this time and and develop it, not necessarily to the direct benefit of LinkedIn, but for you and the things that are important to you, either whether it be recharging or learning something new or teaching something new to somebody else. But I think it's really important to take that structured time and just invest it in yourself. And as leaders, I think it's really important for people like us to make sure that our people have that time and that it's not just nose to the grindstone, 10 hours a day of work, whatever it might be. You have to have the time to build yourself up. And while a lot of that development comes from the work that you're doing day in and day out, sometimes we just need to take a break for ourselves. No, that's a great way. And I think it's consistent with the theory we were just talking about around productive, secure, and healthy. I think it's, you know, that's that concept of uh, smart people and healthy people. And to your point, teams are most effective when the overall organization is healthy. Well, that's a great that's a great way. I like the end days comment. That's a, that's a great way to think about it, Jeff. Yeah, I think well, I, I think healthy people, <laughs> psychologically healthy people, are going to be the best asset for your organization, and it's and it's to all of our benefit to build those people. Oh, I think that's great. I think that's awesome. So I love the learning path stuff, and I know you talked about the no meeting days and things like that. Is there a learning path specifically for how to do effective meetings? There is no such thing as an effective meeting, so uh, I think you're going to have to build. You're going to have to build that learning path. All right, I'm going to work on it then. I think I have a new challenge in life. Switching gears a little bit, I know that you know you've been a big advocate for zero trust. We've talked a lot about it. You know, in the last few years, the industry has terms for it. You know, what do you think that role plays in helping LinkedIn, the LinkedIn folks, and your security team really achieve the objectives there at LinkedIn? I mean, the thing I really love about zero trust as a concept is it really reinforces that there is no safe haven, right? So the easy way to do security is go, all right, as long as I wrap it in a, in a hug of firewall or VPN or something like that, like, I'm safe. As long as I make it back to the secure part of my network, I'm safe. And when you take away that concept that there is some you know, castle keep or someplace you can put your data that is automatically by default safe, 
it really makes you rethink how you build a production environment. It makes you rethink how you calculate and assess your risk. And, you know, putting aside the sort of technology steps that you might associate with it, that is really powerful. Because the thing that continuously causes problems in the in the world today are people sort of thinking that security is a state you can reach, that it is an end goal. And I and I know you know this as well as I do, that that is not the case. Security is a process. It's a, it's a thought process. It's an approach. And when you approach it from a mindset of zero trust, that I can't trust the network, I might not be able to trust the peer services that I'm talking to at some point in the future, it makes you rethink how you would build and design these things. And I think that puts us on a really strong path for you know, how we dig out of the situation that we find ourselves in today where things just are not as secure as they should be. And it's not because we haven't built the tools people need to secure them. It's because there's this thinking of like, well, as long as I hire five more engineers, I'm done. Or as long as I patch this one more time, I'm done. And I think it's really important that we shift the mindset that we used 10 years ago to reflect the threat as it exists today. Yeah, it's uh, that's an amazing way to look at it. I think this issue, I know we've had this conversation before about like, you know, get green, stay green. And people say cholesterol is a perfect example. You know, it's like, oh, I just take this pill and I'm fine. And the reality is you have to change the way you eat and exercise and all the other things that go along with it. And it's a lifestyle change. And I think that's true for the security industry changes we have to go do. So that's a, actually a super good way to think about it. How does that help? With talent, like when you think about zero trust in recruiting talent or training and like getting that mindset, there's the mindset of the people you're bringing in. I think your communications comment was important. Good security people are amazing, but good security people need to make non-security people do and act and behave a certain way. And that hopefully people get charged about doing that because that's a impact and influence play. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think two things. One, I, th- I think the really important thing is that they can influence behaviors, right? They can bring information to the table that influences behaviors because as we all know, A security team by itself can do very little. You can execute on very little throughout the organization that really brings impact. So you need to bring your your product and your business partners along with you. And if you can't communicate them with them, you can't do that. The thing that's great about zero trust, especially where we look at a, a highly competitive recruiting environment that we are in today, is that it means everybody's sort of starting from the same playing field, right? I don't need somebody that knows exactly what the problem has been for the last 10, 15, 20 years. I can bring people in, give them or bring them in with the the fundamental skills that they need for whatever discipline they're in, whether it be application security or cloud security or network security or just governance and risk and compliance. And we can say, okay, let's think about this problem from the perspective of we don't trust anything that we're connected to or interacting with. We can't trust our networks. Let's just treat it like everything's running on a coffee shop network. What would we do differently? How would we approach this problem? And I think, like I said, one of the benefits is this is a relatively new way to think about this problem. And because of that, that means you bring fresh people to the problem. They're going to approach that. They're going to approach solutions in that problem space in a brand new way. And the reality is, like, those are going to be just as impactful, successful solutions as somebody that's got 20 years of experience. The difference is going to be the people with 20 years of experience are going to be a a lot more skilled and adept at executing on that immediately. But I think you partner people that have that new, fresh, diverse perspective with those mentors, and I think you get a lot of win. I think that your point around the fresh new perspective, it'd be helpful maybe if you can either, you can reinforce or debunk the myth because a lot of things I see that scare people away from security is, you know, they see the hoodie and the dark shirt and they've seen, you know, whatever random cyber show that Hollywood or, or any other film part of the world has put out. 
And there's this view that, you know, you've got to be ultra geeky math cosi person. And I mean, some of my best security people have come from none of that background. They're just super inquisitive people who started really wanting to play in data. What's your view on that as far as like, uh, the, again, so I guess debunking the myth about you have to be a math or engineering person to be in this space? I think, first of all, I have a business degree. I, while I was an engineer, I certainly didn't get an engineering degree, although I certainly would have liked to. I think you just, you know, that is just not true. Hoodies are super comfortable and I encourage people to try them because they're they're relaxing and a great way to get some casual work done. But the reality is like, no, you don't have to have this technical, you know, this deep technical skill. But I think at the same time, you know, I, res- I, I have some respect for the people that do because that's the thing that they're really passionate about. They want to know everything down to the, to the op code of how this piece of equipment works. Like, that's fantastic. But that's not useful in terms of having a holistic, big picture view of what's in security. That's super useful. If that's the thing you're really excited about, dive down that rabbit hole. That skill set's going to be valuable, but it's not the only skill sets that's valuable. One of my favorite things about security is it is inherently a multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary practice. We need people from lots of different specialties all working together about how to work on this problem set. And, you know, the good news is you can come from medicine or aeronautics or academia, maybe you were a librarian before, you're going to bring a perspective with you that's going to be useful to put together with other people that have other skill sets to solve the problem. I can't name off the top of my head another profession that's like that right now, where you can come into tech and have a completely non-tech background, but be somebody who's an aggressive, passionate learner that wants to solve this problem, and you can be impactful. Like, you can directly impact good outcomes for millions of people and not have an engineering degree. Yeah, I like that perspective. I really do. And I think we've had other people on the podcast, and one of my favorite arguments is to stay up late with Rasanovich and argue about string theory and whether quant will actually help us with parallel time dimension issues. And, and honestly, as interesting as that is, the more interesting and more impactful conversations is working with my education and awareness team on how we can help people understand what we're doing with zero trust in the most simplified way. And so they're both opposite ends of the spectrum that have both have impact. So I think it's a, a great way to think about it for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I feel also, I feel like I need to get the call from you and Mark when we're arguing about string theory so yeah, I can make well, fart jokes while you guys talk about deep physics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting exercise in futility, but it is still fun to have the conversation. I mean, there are some interesting parts of it that become sort of interesting, but I do think it's overrated. And I don't want people to shy away from the profession. The other thing I guess I'd push on a little bit and and, it, and you brought it up about it being multidisciplinary. Like, at least in this company, in your company, security touches every part of everything you do, whether it's the consumer business, the enterprise business, the global business, the tech side of the business, the legal side of the business. And so I think for many people, even come into security just to get your MBA in business at all and spend, you know, you spend five years on a security team and you learn about every aspect of every business and you can decide, hey, I decide I want to be in this part. Like I like the legal aspect, but I don't want to be in cyber anymore. And I think it's a great training ground for a lot of those things. Here's the fun part of the show. This is a question I have. What are you currently reading and what would you recommend people read these days? Oh, I think those are two very different things. Uh, they are, but- for sure. <laughs> I think I'm currently reading, uh, this is a very, very nerdy book, but 
a different kind of nerdy. I'm reading Relentless Strike, which is a, uh, a history of the Joint Special Operations Command, which is fascinating to me, but I don't recommend it for everybody. I think the book I would recommend for everybody is The Great Game of Business. And that's a book by a couple of guys who built an organization and learned how to run that organization with the books open and teaching people how to make decisions the way the CEO does by looking at, like, you know, here's how to read a profit and loss sheet. Here's how to read a balance sheet. Uh, here's how to read cash flows and understand, you know, how we're making margin on the products that we produce or the software that we ship. Because that kind of thinking, like I don't think security leaders literally need to teach people how to read a PL, although that turns out to be great if you're a frontline manager also. Yeah. But if we can teach people how to operate security the way that the CISO thinks about security and to see the bigger picture about how people like Brett and Jeff are interacting with our CEOs and our boards and, and our peers, I think many more people get a much better idea of what security is really all about. Oh, that's great. I love those. I love those two recommendations. I love the read, and then I love the recommendation. <laughs> now, the practical part, every guest has to answer the same set of three questions. What is meant to be practical advice you give to listeners around, you know, one, two, and three, or ABC, if you want, what leaders can do today to recruit cybersecurity talent and help grow security skills? And then lastly, what's the one thing they should avoid from practical experience, something you're recommending based on your own experience? What's the one thing they should avoid as far as hiring? Yep. Okay, so the number one thing that I tell people in terms of thinking about how they're hiring is to think differently, right? Expand their horizons. And to some extent, what that means is think about people that don't have 20 years experience. Think about people that have the minimum set of skills that you need and what you can do to train them on the way that you do that thing there and the, what mentors you can pair them with so that you're building them into those engineers that you need. I think everybody probably has enough senior talent at this point that hiring more senior people is the really, really the hardest, most competitive part out there about hiring and security. If you hire people that are earlier in the career and pair them with the senior talent that you have, you're much more likely to have a success. The other thing I say is, you know, stay away from the traditional paths to hiring and security. You don't have to hire people that have the most Twitter followers or have the most blog followers. I mean, all those people can be really good, and certainly having the most number of Twitter followers or LinkedIn followers doesn't make you bad, but it also doesn't make you good. I think people that haven't spoken at every conference can be just as good as people that have spoken at every conference. At the same time, you just have to make sure that you're hiring people that are great and that you know how to assess them. I think that's the third one is look at how you're assessing people. Stop, if you're doing any trick questions, if you're asking people questions that are that you think are meant to assess how they think under stress, like just punch yourself in the face and stop asking those questions and then go to questions or go to ways that assess people's actual capability to execute the role. So if this means giving them a written test, or if this means you have a standardized set of questions, or you have a practical thing that you want them to try to solve, like look at those things. And by the way, you can do all those things looking at them blind, You know, where assessors cannot look at their resume or not look at the name. You can really just assess their technical skills. Do that. You're going to find so many people, so many more people that are capable of executing that role perfectly than you would if you just looked at, you know, what conference they spoke at or how many Twitter followers they have or their last LinkedIn post. I think finally, I would say something to avoid is just don't go looking for that purple squirrel or that wonderful unicorn that has the exact number of years of experience that you're looking for or that has done the exact job you're looking to hire. 
most likely, you know, things have changed so much that people who have been, I'll give you a great example, in the identity and access management space for a long time, they know how to do identity and access management, and it doesn't have to always use the same set of tools. So I think as long as you're looking for people that have the deep skills, that have the knowledge, that are lifelong learners, and that are passionate about learning new things, you can find a whole world of new candidates that are available for that role that you want to fill. I think that everything you said will help you build a much more inclusive environment, which will build a more productive system in the, in the way you look at it, which I think is great. I also love the first comment around the org shape. I remember when we first started looking at org shape, you know, and is it a square box? Is it a pyramid? Is it a pear? Is it an apple? But I think certainly people have to get much, much more interested in, in early and career talent and having a much bigger pool to draw from because that's where you're building the skill sets you need building for the future of the company, building for the future of the functions you're doing. Well, I really appreciate your time, Jeff. Obviously, I've learned a lot, as I always do in these conversations, and uh, I look forward to the next conversation. Thanks for letting me ramble for another another chunk of time, and, and I appreciate the time, Brett. Thanks a lot. I uh, appreciate it, Jeff. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. I look forward to our next episode. And remember, stay safe and stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.